Hello and welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich, the podcast celebrating conversation, conversation that's alive and well with creative people who have a lot to say and offer. Today, one of the best-selling writers in the world who crafts mysteries and thrillers that'll keep you up at night, the one and only Jeffrey Deaver, whose books have been sold in 150 countries, translated into over 25 languages. He's got about 50 million sold worldwide. His latest is called Hunting Time, and it's a new Coulter Shaw novel. Here's somebody I've always wanted to talk with and present to you. So there's no time like the present. Let's get to it. And welcome Jeffrey Deaver as he joins us now on Mike. Well, to say that I'm excited to be talking with Jeffrey Deaver is the understatement. I've had a great, great run talking with many, many authors, big-time authors. You're one of my faves, and uh, for so many reasons. And this latest book, I've, I don't know if you can tell, but my neck is a little stiff from from being <laughs> twisted in a bunch of different directions. Absolute thrill ride called Hunting Time. Uh, Jeffrey, congratulations on the latest project, first of all. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jordan. Funny you mentioned that because... Uh, I just got a review out of the UK that said uh, there are so many twists and turns. You'll be sending Deaver your your chiropractic <laughs> uh, chiropractor's bill, uh, and I consider that a huge compliment uh, coming from them and coming from you too. Well, it, it's it's a it's a joy to be literally uh, agog. You want your mouth open. And you just want to have a thrill ride, and this is no exception. And there are so many things to talk about. Uh, first of all, the title, which we'll get to, Hunting Time, it's not just a title that has n- just a nice sound to it. There's a real reason for that. Let's talk about the uh, the character. He's different than Lincoln Rhymes, your most famous hero, in many ways. He's younger. He's more able-bodied, needless to say. But what makes Coulter so special in your estimation? When I was... Growing up, well, I was a nerd for one thing. I had no talent for sports whatsoever, oh. and because of that, I um, I kind of lived in the library. Obviously, I read uh, science fiction, <clears throat> but I I really loved um, the the classic uh, western, uh, the Jack Schaefer novel Shane, for instance, which was turned into a wonderful wonderful movie. Uh, Alan Ladd Jr. starred in that, and this is about the you know, the, the the gunslinger who comes to town, Clint Eastwood in The Man with No Name, Sergio Leone uh, films. I love that character. <clears throat> now, Lincoln Rhyme is kind of the antithesis of that guy. He's an, uh, he's a Sherlock Holmes. He's a doesn't get out of the field because he is disabled, but also he wouldn't if he could. Right. Being a forensics but guy. He right. To solve the crime sitting in his uh, den. Yeah, with a glass of scotch in his hand. But but I thought, you know, I, in addition to that hero, I want to create a hero that kind of fills in the gap for heroness, which may not be a word, but you get the idea. <laughs> and that is somebody uh, who travels around the country and and is this man with no name kind of character, uh, the, the Shane character. Now, the books are set in the present day, of course. He doesn't ride a Palomino into town. I believe that's a horse. I'm not sure. I think so. Yeah. Uh, he's got a Winnebago. And he... Um, he looks for rewards that have been offered by uh, uh, parents for missing children, uh, by the police for uh, bad guys they can't find, for prison officials for uh, escaped uh, uh, prisoners. And um, he he travels to town, uh, solves the, the crime, then moves on into the sunset. Now, the reward-seeking part, is, rewards actually exist, of course, we're very familiar with them, but they, um, as far as I know, there really is no one who makes a living doing this. And indeed, Coulter Shaw doesn't really care about the the money. Uh, you know, hundred thousand dollar reward. Well, that's fine. 
we we learn through the course of the four books that he he has resources elsewhere. What he likes is the challenge a reward represents, because if there's a reward, that means nobody's been able to solve the problem. And uh, that's what uh, that's where we find him in hunting time. This is his fourth uh, outing as a reward seeker. I love him. He's great. And uh, let's talk about the title since I mentioned it. Uh, it's It's got a connection to his family background. And it's so easy to paint a character with the family that's living off the land and sort of freewheeling and off the grid and paint them as hillbillies or rubes or rogues or rednecks. And that's explained in this particular book, I'm sure, and others too. His family does mold him as a character, doesn't it? Indeed. His parents were brilliant professors and scientists at an unnamed school well, Berkeley, California, we can kind of figure out which one it is, but I don't name Cal by, uh, by uh, specifically. Um, but they had to flee because of a discovery that their father, Ashton Shaw, discovered. <clears throat> and uh, I should say that th- this discovery is a, a, a recurring subplot in the first three books, The Never Game, The uh, Goodbye Man, and The Final Twist, uh, in which Colter Shaw not only seeks rewards, it investigates his father's demise uh, some years before. Well, uh, Ashton took the uh, family to the Sierra Nevadas and a bit paranoid, admittedly, uh, he uh, taught the children, the three kids, uh, Russell, Coulter, and Dorian, uh, how to be survivalists. And we think of survivalists potentially as crackpots, uh, you know, maybe anti-government crazies. Um, often racists and nationalists, and those are, that's very true. Uh, they, they certainly exist, but that was not uh, Ashton. He, one of his most revered books was Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he wanted the, uh, the, the children to be just that, self-reliant. And that's, that's who Coulter Shaw is. And so uh, hunting time, well, in one sense, uh, they, they, the kids learn to hunt. Um, hunting also involves tracking, and as a yet a third meaning, and you, you hit the nail on the head, Jordan, that I love my titles to do double or triple duty, <laughs> hunting time can mean hunting for time. In other words, trying to buy time. Uh, in fact, Ashton Shaw had the phrase um, hunting time. Uh, and the, the, his son, Coulter, said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, buying time is not assertive enough. You want to buy time to do something. That's not assertive enough. You have to hunt for time mm. in order to get a, a block of hours to do something in, in the survival context. And that is certainly true in uh, this latest novel. And it's unveiled at a very important point in the novel when there is a hunt underway. Who's hunting who? We'll let the readers figure that out. The stakes are very high. And when you're drawing a, a story that is so in intricate and so much fun. You want to place the stakes high. And in this case, we're talking about nuclear issues, but not governments. We're talking about private corporations. And I love the name Pocket Sun. Wow, what a concept, right? (laughs) Are there companies that are working on providing individual organizations or not into organizations, but individual states and countries and people in those lands the chance to heat their homes on a much easier scale with nukes? How how does that work? Yeah, this is something I... I happen to read about, and uh, you know, like you're you're a journalist. Uh, I'm a fiction writer. We collect facts. You know, <laughs> we see things 
that, uh, you know, maybe we don't have an immediate need for, but we clip that article. I say clip, now it's, you know, cut and paste. I, when I teach my course in writing, a lot of my students don't realize that some of us actually cut and pasted things when we started writing. Yeah, paste he, and, I, I'm and Les scissors. Nesmond. You can probably see the cuts on my fingers from razor ah, blades. Exa exactly. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. So, understand uh, that. But, but I, I read something about uh, these uh, portable nuclear reactors. And when I say portable, you know, they weigh 60 tons. You couldn't go down to Home Depot and bring one home. But 60 tons is is incredibly small for a standalone nuclear reactor and they are uh, yes they're being made they're in operation uh now um they one of the the most important reasons well for one thing they can be used uh commercially in say the united states even though we have access to power grids to supplement the power grid and to move away from uh from fossil fuel energy now there's an argument that nuclear is is not environmentally sound but in general most uh, environmentalists will say it's it's more sound than fossil fuel uh, there are some limitations but one of the most important things and what our uh, industrialist in the uh, the hunting time intends to do is get these to third world countries where there is uh, certainly a lack of a lack of energy altogether his point is not so much to hot water and cooking stoves, but to bring them enlightenment. And he feels that there are uh, many areas that are, I think we can all agree, a bit backward in terms of uh, attitude, uh, you know, attitudes uh, toward women's, uh, women, toward minorities, and uh, that opening up these societies to uh, uh, the, the Internet will uh, perhaps... Um, bring a bit of uh, moderation to some of those uh, extremist and unfortunate views. Well, that's just the, the start of it. Uh, these nuclear uh, uh, reactors can have uh, very detrimental effects, not be, by operating them as reactors, but because of proliferation. That That's a term mm -hmm. I learned means basically stealing nuclear fuel and making a bomb out of it. Or more realistically, because things are fairly small, um, it, it, and it would take a lot of energy of the fuel rods from a, a, a miniature reactor to make a bomb. Dirty weapons are basically mm -hmm. just as dangerous. Now, the odds of somebody taking out uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, where I happen to near where I live, with a nuclear bomb, I hope are fairly small. Uh, but a terrorist could easily get in a huge amount of uh, just radioactive material and sicken and kill thousands of people, and that would be a very unpleasant. Uh, illness and unpleasant death, and so right. uh, that was that makes up a you know a fairly uh, important vital part of the book. Well, that's why I said the stakes are pretty darn high, and you've got a chase to retrieve individuals who play a big role in these, including some very smart engineers and one particular mom and her and her daughter, and uh, that's what makes it so much fun. It is very Shane-like. <laughs> you mentioned Alan Ladd, uh, Coulter Shaw. He's such a decent guy, but he's also very smart, very crafty. Sun Tzu is a lot of art of war stuff going on here. He's very smart about not attacking unless you really have to and letting the other person come at you. A lot of good philosophy about combat and how not to hurt yourself in the process. Yeah, I, and I have to say, uh, I'm occasionally asked, uh, Jeff, is uh, there any Coulter Shaw in you? And I can emphatically say no, uh, <laughs> other than the fact that I I'm a bit of a coffee aficionado, as he is, mm -hmm. and I like my beer, 
as he does. But uh, Coulter Shaw is an outdoor kind of guy, a survivalist, of course. Um, he, he can survive in blizzards, uh, in the desert, in forests. He knows how to uh, find his way out of situations. He knows uh, when, to, uh, when to fight and when to run. He has a, a, a philosophy that uh, readers have found fascinating. And it's basically the percentile a philosophy of yeah. survival. Yeah. And uh, this relates to his uh, deciding to fight or flee in situations. And he will assess uh, a confrontation and say, well, I have a 65. He doesn't get too specific about it. But let's say I've got a 60 percent chance of beating this fellow uh, in a fight. I've got a 30 percent chance of getting away. Uh, so um, I'm going to fight him. That's as simple as that. If it were the other way, he'd run. He has yeah. no problem with that. It, it's a catchphrase kind of thing that it becomes obvious to the reader that uh, this is yeah. his shtick. And I mean yeah, that in a yeah. good way, in a logical way. And it's it's yeah. fun to see how he's assessing each situation. Yeah. Are you are you crazy? You're going to hike hike through this blizzard? No, you shelter in place. It's a it's a ninety ten percent decision there. It's easy. I wanted to ask you about some things that I, I noted, and I'm not giving any plot points away because there are too many plot I couldn't do it anyway if I even tried to go back and tell anybody about this because you just got to read it to find out. Heuristic thinking. Mm. May we spend a moment on that? Because I looked it up. Sure. Sure. <laughs> a, um, the, the engineer in the book um, who has uh, devised this uh, computerized part to control uh, the uh, – the pocket suns, the, the miniature nuclear reactors. Uh, I myself am not, uh, don't have a scientific background, but um, the heuristic way of thinking is uh, essentially a, a problem-solving technique that is uh, used by, uh, actually it could be applied to anything. In this context, it's uh, engineering. Uh, and it's, it's kind of trial and error. Uh, you know, it, it's possible if you're confronted with a, a problem about, let's say, metal fatigue in airplane wings, you can look up uh, many, many studies, uh, charts, diagrams, uh, mathematical formulae that tell you about engineering uh, problems involving metal fatigue. But sometimes you're confronted with a problem that there's no precedent for. And this heuristic uh, approach involves you know, essentially getting together the maybe six topics, uh, maybe the six topics that seem to be best at, to solve it, and then trying them out and seeing if they work. And, and that's that's a technique that's used uh, by uh, the engineer, along with Coulter Shaw's more methodical technique. And I love the way when each character has a particular skill that they bring to a, a, a task or a chore or the plot of a movie, for instance, and... Uh, that um, that helps them join together to to confront the uh, the bad guy, and that's what uh, Allison does. The engineer does in this book, along with Coulter Shaw's, you know, more shoot 'em up attitude. And she hates guns for reasons that are revealed in the story. She has wants nothing to do with firearms, and Coulter offers her one, and she says, uh, "No, I don't want it." He said, "Well, no, it's okay. It's a revolver. There's no danger. You could." pull the trigger by mistake, it's got a heavy pull. And she says, I don't need any of that, that, you know, technical, I won't use the word she uses, yeah, I don't need right. any of that technical, technical stuff. I just don't like guns, get it away from me. And so uh, uh, Coulter says, well, okay, but he's the guy with the gun, 
She's the person with the engineering attitude, and together they. Uh, well, I won't give too much. Well, away, I, I will say this: together. if you're looking for a primer on gun safety, there's no better teacher than Coulter Shaw. By the way, <laughs> Just, oh, absolutely. I mean, you you got it covered. I mean, you can learn a lot. We don't have a lot of time, so I want to cover a few more things. My favorite character, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, beyond Coulter, of course, is John Merritt, the police officer. Let's put it that way. I, I won't get into his story, but. What an incredible character drawn here, especially during times when police are coming under question and, and there are so many controversial takes on policing. He was exceptionally well drawn. Well, th- thank you. Thank you. Um, I heard a thing on, um, um, I, it was a radio show. Um, I can't remember where it was, NPR, I believe. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the um, uh, interviewee was a neuroscientist of some sort. And she said, um, you know, the part of our brain that forms an emotional connection with real people in our lives, our our family, uh, you know, our lovers, our friends, uh, and the bad guys, the guy who cuts us off on the the freeway, uh, our bad boss, uh, the part of the brain that, that gives us that adrenaline rush for good or for bad, creates love and hate, is the same part of the brain that creates those same emotions in fictional characters. And that, that was a revelation to me. And it told me that I have to create uh, characters that are truly fleshed out, that are truly living, breathing. Mm. And I did that with, I do that with the bad guys. I do that with the good guys. And uh, uh, John Merritt is somebody I spent a lot of time with because he's pivotal. Mm. And we can say that, uh, yes, uh, uh, has a police background and uh, was Ali's, the engineer's ex-husband. And uh, plays a, a very pivotal role throughout the book. And it's a role that is like a, uh, you know, in the mountain roads, a switchback that goes back and forth. And uh, we're never quite sure what to, to make of John. But in the end, I'm putting ellipses in there because I don't want to give anything away. No, no, you don't. You shouldn't. And I'm, I'll just say this meticulous planning uh, uh, plot points and character development, which is something that Jeffrey is very well known for. You will not be disappointed, friends. Just be in awe when you see what happens, how it unfolds. And that's the sign of a great thriller writer. I do have to ask you, because I've been meaning to ask you when I get a chance to talk to you for years about this, taking on 007 when you did. Uh, oh, sure. And and I was, by the way, I rushed out to get that book. I couldn't wait. <clears throat> and I wanted to see what your take would be. And I loved it, by the way. But how did that come about? Uh, Robert Parker, of course, did some work picking up on other great authors. How did you get into that whole deal? A few years ago, my book, Garden of Beasts, won an award in England. Um, and the uh, in the audience was... and a a representative of the Ian Fleming estate. Ian Fleming, author of the James Bond books, passed away in the 1960s. And uh, the the franchise was so popular, uh, the estate um, basically hired authors to continue writing uh, uh, writing the books. And I had made a comment in accepting this award that I knew the Fleming uh, folks were there. And I said, "I'm, I'm very delighted uh, with that because uh, James Bond was a major influence in my my writing. And uh, they heard that, they appreciated it, and called my agent and said, would I like to write a continuation novel? And uh, several other people have, uh, mostly British, but uh, another American, Raymond Benson, had written a few. And since I, I loved the character and loved the books, I said, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do it. 
And but I did say this that I I had to write a, a Deaver book. By that I mean uh, Ian Fleming wrote a very linear story. There were no twists or surprises in it. You know, Bond meets Goldfinger pretty early in the book. He's he's good. He's bad. Uh, they're on a collision course. Right. We're not quite sure how it's going to resolve, but we know it it uh, will. Or Rosa Klebb and from Russia with Love. Uh, Doctor No. Blofeld. Right. Yeah, Doctor No. Yeah. Blofeld. All the bad guys. And those are they're, they're wonderful books. But that's not what I do. I have uh, mistaken identities. I have uh, surprises and twists that I set up at the very beginning of the book that pay off with the surprise ending, then another surprise ending, then another surprise ending. And I said uh, to them, I, I, I can't, the, and the other Bond authors have tended to write a Bond book set in that era, the 1960s. And I said, and I have to write a Deaver book and I have to set the book in the modern day. Why? Because I want young readers or at least readers new to the Bond book to experience Bond the way I did when I was a teenager. Mm. And, um, you know, Bond was at that time. Uh, forget the movies. Bond was a a, fair, a young uh, spy in his uh, early thirties, and uh, was a a character, a, a veteran of World War II. Uh, naval intelligence. Naval intelligence was kind of like the, uh, as it was in America, kind of like the CIA of the time. Uh, they, we didn't know about MI6. Technically, didn't exist uh, then, and it didn't really exist until fairly recently. And uh, they said, "Oh, sure, go go with it, go with that." And I did. It was great fun to uh, great fun to write. Uh, the reception has been very good. Mm. And uh, I, uh, I it, they asked if I wanted to do it again, but you know, I didn't own the copyright to it. Uh, it was a as one doesn't. The estate owns the copyright, and I I, I don't do that generally. Um, and they were good to work with, but I, I, I rarely have anybody looking over my shoulder uh, when I write, yeah. and they didn't do that for the first book, but I, I just thought, you know, it's better to stick with my own. There, there are breakdowns of villains in, in every great thriller. You know, there's the megalomaniac at the top, maybe, but the two goons in your book currently, this drove me crazy. I'm sure you're getting feedback from writers, um, readers, rather. The Don Do reference, I'll just say it that way. <laughs> you, you, you got this this thug and he's great and there's two thugs and they're terrific because they've got interesting characters and you throw in this little phrase that this guy's muttering and I'm thinking what the hell and I could I kept reading and reading and reading it does pay off finally and what a great payoff but you've written so many books ultimately you, you know you, you some would think you'd run out of bad guys to write about but not you <laughs> <laughs> well well I, I, I'm sorry uh, Jordan I have to say there's a there's an awful lot of bad guys out yeah, there. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, you know, it certainly is a, um, a well, sadly, a well to draw upon. And also, uh, you know, I'm a sick and twisted kind of guy. I've got an imagination. Uh, are you a, are you a father of a teenager currently or you have been because you nailed I, I, the teenager? I, yeah. Yeah, I, I have been. And, uh, if you're talking <laughs> about Hannah in the, uh, yes. uh the, the book, I, I say that, uh, you know, and sometimes in interviews I say, yeah, Coulter Shaw is up against uh, these two nefarious, sneaky bad guys. And there's some maybe corrupt police who are after him. And then he also has to deal with an attitudinal, attitudinal teenager. And the readers say, far worse, far worse. Oh, absolutely. I, I, mine are uh, well-grown, but I have granddaughters but that are not quite that age yet. So it's a primer on how to deal with them. <laughs> but I thought I thought she was terrific. A lot of oh, fun. Thank you. A lot of fun. And uh, 
the the evolution of all actually all your characters they all seem to evolve even the heroes and i think that's what makes readers uh, happy readers readers enjoy that you know they they feel as i was saying just a few moments ago that uh, the more realistic you make your characters the better for the the book and um, the better for readers they want to you know they fall in love with the characters i mean look at harry potter the the plots were a bit improbable uh, i i was more of a lord of the rings fan than a, a harry potter fan but you know the plots were kind of Quidditch, I didn't care flying around on brooms and stuff. That didn't really move me. But the connection between the characters and how they evolved uh, was breathtaking. I Absolutely. Think. So very quickly before we wrap up, uh, is is there another Coulter in the works currently? Are you working on that, Lincoln Rhymes, or a brand new series? What's the latest? Sure. Well, as, we, as we're on, this is, a, of course, a, a Zoom interview, so I'm on my computer now. And if I could minimize the screen, you would see <laughs> the next... Lincoln Rhyme book, uh, that is, uh, first draft is done. I'm going to be editing cool. that for the next few months. That will be out in uh, uh, sometime next year, not sure when. And uh, the next Culture Shaw is being outlined right now. And I, I do have to say that I also write uh, short stories for Amazon Original Stories. And we've got a couple uh, uh, coming out pretty soon, including one that I'm very excited about called uh, The Broken Doll. And it's a, a four short story cycle. In other words, each short story is standalone, beginning, middle, end, very exciting, I think. But it also relates to the three other stories in this cycle. In other words, characters come and go. They show up in another story. We think they're dead, but, oh, they're alive. Uh, we jump back and forth in time. And so uh, mm. I say it's uh, Quentin Tarantino meets Dashiell Hammett. <laughs> well, you figured it out a long time ago, hence the great success. The latest is called Hunting Time. It's been a lifelong journey for me to track you down, but I did. I'm so excited about having you on the podcast. And folks, if they know the name Jeffrey Deaver, they know they're in for a thrill ride from beginning to end. Thank you so much, Jeff. Okay, we'll talk again. You take care now, Jordan. Thank you. Jeffrey Deaver, famous for the Lincoln Rhyme series and the Coulter Shaw novels. His latest Coulter Shaw novel is called Hunting Time, and it's a page-turner. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to everyone at Chart Productions, where we produce this and a whole slew of podcasts, audiobooks, commercials, narrations, and more. We're busy with a thousand projects. Check out chartproductions.com or jordanrich.com. And a special thank you to you subscribers out there who continue to download the program and share it with your friends. We really appreciate it. Till next time, this is JR saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care. <laughs>